0: A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now. Use the code EPL25 Again, LibertyShield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, good, boys and girls, too, for the podcast on Thursday, the 11th of May. Hope you're all well. Lashing rain here again, which I know is the type of content you're looking for. So, we had Champions League action last night. Second semi-final kicked off. And Inter Milan went across the hole and beat AC Milan by two goals to nil. Ed and Dzeko scored on eight minutes. Henrik Mkhitaryan scored on 11 minutes and Inter were the better team throughout and potentially could and should have scored a couple more goals. They will feel like they've left something on the table here. For Milan, it's obviously a big blow, but there is still the second leg to come. There are no away goals. And it's not like they're going away to play the second leg. It's still at their stadium. So it's still... In the balance, you would give a strong advantage to Inter, obviously but you can't write off AC Milan not on the base of what we saw last night like I said, Inter went into the game in better form and I did fancy them to win but because it's such a unique thing where it's a a derby in a shared stadium this is far from over far from over so we're well balanced in both Champions League semi-finals. City obviously will feel com- com- uh, comfortable and confident going home 1-1, but you never write off Real Madrid. And while Milan have a lot of work to do to get back into that, it's still very much a possibility. Tonight we have Europa League and Europa Conference League semi-finals. So first up in the Europa League. We get Roma versus Leverkusen. Now, Roma have hit a rough patch of form in recent weeks. Leverkusen, they've kind of evened out after a great run under Xabi Alonso, but they're so much better now than they were earlier in the season. And there's a lot of confidence in the team. They've got Florian Verts back. He's playing really well. And there's a lot of good players in that team. So this is going to be a really tough one for both sides. I think the big advantage with Roma is who their manager is. Now, Roma finished second in Group C behind Real Betis. Bayer Leverkusen dropped into this competition from the Champions League. Leverkusen knocked out Monaco. Roma knocked out Red Bull Salzburg. Then Leverkusen beat Ferenc Varosh, while Roma beat Real Sociedad. Leverkusen beat a Union Saint-Gelos, the club owned by Tony Bloom of Brighton, while Roma beat Feyenoord to set this one up. This should be two really good games, two very contrasting styles Two managers at completely different ends of the scale. Alonso, still green behind the ears or wet behind the ears. Wet behind the ears, I think is the phrase. Um but you know, he's he's done a very good job since taking over there. Jose has been there, done it, won it all. If it's worth winning, he has won it. And I think I'd have to give the advantage to Roma based on the fact that they do have Mourinho. The guy just knows how to win major European trophies. Two European Cups with Roma and Inter Milan, two UEFA Cup slash Europa Leagues with... Sorry, did I say with Roma and Inter Milan? I meant with Porto and Inter Milan. Europa League with Porto when it was the UEFA Cup, Europa League with Manchester United and obviously won the Europa Conference League last season with Roma. Five major European trophies to his name. That's That's really impressive, regardless of your thoughts on Mourinho. You can't deny the success he's had. The titles with Porto, with Chelsea, with Inter, with Real, with Chelsea again. The guy has just, he's accomplished it all. He's one of the greatest managers ever. And I I do think that gives Roma an edge, especially tonight where they're at home in front of their own fans. I'd expect the Olympic Stadium in Rome to be fairly lively tonight. Leverkusen, they're quite a young team. They could find the stage a little bit too much for them, but they they play really good football and there's a lot of really fun players in that team. In the other semi-final then, it's Juventus against Sevilla. Now Juventus, what a strange season for them. They were in the top four in Italy, then they were out because they got 15 points deducted. Now they've gotten the 15 points back, but it's going to be reviewed again at a future date. In terms of European competition this year, they were in the Champions League. They got dumped out. They found their way in here. Same thing happened with Sevilla. They found their way into this competition, having been dumped out of the Champions League. They're, whole, they're having a, an awful season. They're on their third manager. It's real desperation times around Sevilla because there seems to be a lack of direction, which is very unusual for a club that Manchi runs. But they're still at the semi-finals of a European competition. Juventus, to get to this point, knocked out Nantes, Freiburg and Sporting, Lisbon. Lucky to get past Sporting. Sevilla knocked out PSV Eindhoven, Fenerbahce and then Manchester United. And The United thing was particularly impressive because United were 2-0 up with about seven minutes left in the first leg. Sevilla came back, got the draw and then walloped them in Seville. So, sets this one up. Should be a good game. I think you'd have to back Juve. They're just a better team right now, but this is Sevilla in the Europa League competition that they've won more times than anybody else. And it's it's always hard to bet against them. They just know how to win this competition, even if the pieces change, and all the players obviously have changed from the first few they won, and most of the players have changed from the three they won under Unai Emery. There's a few there from when they won it under Lopetegui but there's just an intrinsic nature in that club where they just know how to win this competition. And Manchi is the key to all of it. So I think we're going to get two really good games in the Europa League tonight. I don't even know which game to suggest to watch. I'd probably say Roma Leverkusen on the basis that I think Leverkusen are a really, really good watch, but you can't really go wrong. I don't think. Um, in the Europa Conference League, then we get West Ham versus versus AZ Alkmaar and Fiorentina versus Basel. Uh, West Ham obviously have had a very poor domestic campaign. There's just no doubt this is a huge disappointment dis, uh, disappointment for them. Alkmaar currently sit fourth in the Eredivisie. They're two points behind Ajax, so they could potentially get a top three finish, which would be a great achievement for them. Uh, There's actually a really good piece on the BBC website about Alkmaar and, and the approach they've taken to building this team. And there's some really good players in that Alkmaar team. Players that perhaps not everybody has been aware of. Players that your club might potentially look at this summer. Uh, The one that stands out to me is Milos Kerkas, the young Hungarian left-back. I think he's outstanding. But Jordi Classy is there. People will remember him from when he was at Southampton. Prior to that, he was at Feyenoord, and he was one of the biggest prospects coming out of the Eredivisie. Matthew Ryan, former Brighton goalkeeper, he's there. Danny DeWitt, really talented player. For some reason, just hasn't moved outside the Eredivisie yet and probably won't. And maybe he's better off. Bruno Martins Indy is the captain. People remember him from Porto and Stoke. Um, Who else do we have? Richly Bazur remember him? Came through at Ajax, very highly rated. Went to Wolfsburg and it just didn't really work out for him. Uh, He's sort of relaunched his career since moving back to the Netherlands. He did quite well with Vietas Arnhem. And then Alkmaar picked him up last summer on a free. And he's been pretty good for them. Zeno van van Heusden, the uh, young Belgian centre-back, when he came through first at Standard Liège, he was like 16 and everybody was talking about this kid is, this is the next one from the Belgian production line, this kid is going to be special. And he went into Milan at 16 and he tore his ACL. So it didn't work out from it at Milan, he went At Inter, rather, he went on loan to Standard Liège, did well. They spent a bunch of money to buy him. He got injured again. He went back to Inter Milan. He got injured again. And now he's on a second loan spell from Inter. Last season, he was at um, Genoa and did as well as you could expect in a team that was a shambles. Now Now he's here. With, uh, with Alkmaar and hoping to rebuild his career. He's only 23, so still has time. But it reminds me a bit of Bad Stuber. Remember when Bad Stuber, Holger Stuber was like the best young defender in the world? And it looked like he was going to be a mainstay in the German national team for years and years and years to come. And he was great at Bayern. And then his knee just gave up on him. Kind of feels like that with Van Van Huysden. But Milos Kirkus is the one to keep an eye on. I I think if your club is looking for an attacking left-back, this might be the kid. He is really, really good. Really, really good. And I think him and Dominic Zavazlai will prove uh, to be the kind of mainstays, the the main pillars of Hungary's team moving forward as well. Um, In the other one, Fiorentina versus Basel. Fiorentina have had a bit of a mixed season. Actually, just how how did these teams get to this point, I suppose, is worth looking at. Uh, West Ham won their group. Six wins from six games. Top the group came through without any real uh, concern. Alkmaar, I actually don't remember where Alkmaar were. I'm assuming they dropped in out of the Europa League. It looks like they did. Um, No, they didn't either. Oh, no, they didn't. The top group E. They finished top of group E with five wins from six um, ahead of Dnipro. So, to get here, in the round of 16, Alkmaar beat Lazio, which was a, a really impressive result. West Ham beat Larnica. Then Alkmaar, uh, Alkmaar beat Anderlecht, while West Ham beat Ghent. And now we have the two of them facing off. In the other one, like I said, Basel against Fiorentina. Fiorentina have been very strange. They started the season dreadfully, but they've actually, for the most part, looked pretty good. Let's just get up their season. Yeah, they start the season fairly poorly. They win only two of their first 11 games. Then things are a bit of a mixed bag. They have a bad run in January. But then from mid-February on, they've only lost two games. They dragged themselves up the table from like 14th up to 8th, which isn't great, admittedly. But it's not bad considering how bad they were for two stretches in the year. They're also in the Coppa Italia final. They'll face Inter Milan on the 24th of May. Uh, To get here, they knocked out 20. They finished second in their group behind Istanbul-Bashikshir. Then they knocked out Braga. They knocked out Sivaspor and they knocked out Lech Poznan. For Basel, they are not having a particularly good domestic season. Uh, They currently sit, I think, sixth in the Swiss League, which really isn't ideal for a team of their tradition, or recent tradition at least. Young boys have have run away with it. They've won it by a mile. Uh, Basel sits sixth. As things stand, they would not qualify for Europe next season, which would be a big blow to them. Uh, In this competition... They knocked out Crusaders of Northern Ireland. Then they knocked out Bromby of Denmark. CSKA Sofia finished second in their group behind Slovan Bratislava. Knocked out Trabzonspor. Knocked out Slovan Bratislava. Knocked out Nice, which was a big upset. And now they face Fiorentina. Again, I think both of these are good games. West Ham Alkmaar has the potential to be fun. If West Ham need a left-back and really should be keeping a close eye on Milos Kirkus, But both of those games should be fun, as should the Europa League games. You've got decent choices tonight. Right, I won't get to do this tomorrow, so we'll have a look at it now. The playoff situation in the lower leagues. So let's start with the National League, where we'll have the playoff final on Saturday. 3.30 kickoff. Chesterfield versus Notts County at Wembley. Massive occasion for both clubs. Notts County deserve it based on the balance of the season. But Chesterfield have an equal chance, so best of luck to both teams. In League 2, we have Salford City against Stockport on Saturday. That is a quarter to eight kickoff. And then at 7pm on Sunday... It is Bradford City against Carlisle. The second legs will be played exactly a week later. So Saturday week is Stockport versus Salford, Carlisle versus Bradford. Those should be decent. In League One, tomorrow, that's Friday, 8pm kickoff, Peterborough at home to Sheffield Sheffield Wednesday. And then Saturday at 3pm, it's Bolton versus Barnsley. Next Thursday... Sheffield Wednesday home to Peterborough again an 8 p.m. kickoff. And on the Friday, Barnsley home to Bolton an 8 p.m. kickoff. In the championship, Saturday at 5:30, it is Sunderland versus Luton. Sunday at noon, it's Coventry against Middlesbrough. Quick turnaround in these, though. Tuesday night at 8 p.m., Luton home to Sunderland. Wednesday night at 8 p.m., Middlesbrough home to Coventry. So I'm really looking forward to these. Really, really looking forward to these. I think whatever happens, we're getting a good club coming up. And I love I, – I'd be happy with any of them. Sunderland, I'm not overly pushed with. But if they'd like to take back Jordan Henderson, we could make a deal there. But I've always had a soft spot for Middlesbrough from when they first come up into the Premier League and opened their new stadium and signed Nicky Barmby, and then they signed Ravinelli and Janino and Emerson and Gianluca Festa, and they were just great fun. And I remember players like Craig Hignett and Curtis Fleming, and there was just Nigel Pearson was there, and Brian Robson obviously was the manager, and Viv Anderson was the assistant manager, and they had Mikel Beck, and then they signed Mark Schwarzer as the goalkeeper, and there was just lots of fun with Middlesbrough. And they got the two cup finals, lost them both and got relegated in what has to be has to be the most heartbreaking end of a season any club has ever had. So I've got a soft spot for them. I've also got a soft spot for Coventry. Go back to the early years of the Premier League, whether they were managed by Ron Atkinson or Gordon Strachan, and they just had really good players like Peter Undlove, Dion Dublin, Mustafa Hadji. They had Richard Shaw, David Boost, who obviously had the horrendous leg injury at Old Trafford. Darren Huckerby was there. Robbie Keane was there. Was Craig Bellamy there? I don't think he was. But they were a lot of fun. And Highfield Road was great. It was an old school stadium. And one of my closest friends was born in Coventry. So, again, I always keep an eye out for them. And then, obviously, the good doctor, Dr. Raj, he's also a Coventry boy goes fairly regularly. So um, there's a lot to like about Coventry, how they play, how they go about their business. There's a lot to like about Borough and how they're playing under Michael Carrick. What a job he's done turning them around. So both of them play good football. They're managed well. There's really interesting players in both teams. Hayden Hackney for Borough is going to be in the Premier League next season. He's a Rolls Royce of a midfielder. And Victor Giorcarez is going to be in the Premier League next year. He's a great striker. So that's fun. Like I say, not overly pushed by Sunderland. But if they're up, great. Congrats to them. A uh, Great stadium. The fans are, are fantastic. They've been through a lot over the last couple of years. If you've watched Sunderland Till I Die, you'll know some of it. But Luton is the story I love most. Because Luton are a tiny club with a tiny stadium who put huge emphasis on their recruitment, have done it on a shoestring budget. I'd love to see Kenilworth roll back as a Premier League stadium. I think it'd be hilarious. I love the fact that Nathan Jones walked out in them to to go to Southampton and got sacked shortly after. I love the Rob Edwards redemption arc, having been sacked by Watford. He joins Watford's biggest rivals and may well take them up. Luton on budget should be a League One club, and here they are in the championship, punching way above their weight. And if not for pretty historic seasons from Burnley and Sheffield United, Luton could easily have come up automatically. And when you consider Luton drew three of their last five games, they they drew 17 on the season. They actually lost less games than Sheffield United. They only lost eight games all season. They had the joint second best defensive record in the league. Um, they, they just struggled to score goals at times. 57 goals is very low. Only Blackburn and Watford and Preston in the top half scored less. So they just struggled to turn some of those draws into win 17 draws. They've been able to turn more of them into wins. They could have come up automatically. So they've done an amazing job. They've already been told if they come up, they'll probably have to spend somewhere close to 10 million on stadium upgrades. It would probably be a lot cheaper to build a new stadium because it's very, very tight there. Um, but I assume they'd be allowed just use their stadium for the first year and then do the upgrades afterwards. Um, similar to when Bournemouth came up, I think their stadium wasn't up to code. But yeah, I, that, they'd be a great st- story. I'd be delighted if Borough or Coventry came up. And Sunderland, yeah, we'd be happy enough. Like It's a really good playoff group this year. So those should be fun this weekend. Right, we'll take a break. When we come back, we've got some questions. We've got little bits of news. We've got the gossip, and that will do. So I will see you all in a minute. Right, welcome back. So, uh, we have first question. This is from um, NFL underscore Seahawks zero, 00. I think he sent this last week, but I'm only getting around to them now. How would you rebuild the Everton team, and how can Everton progress going forwards? I think in Dyche they've got a good manager. I think they've got the basis of a decent team. I think Patterson's very good. I think Michael is better than he's given credit for. I, I do think he is more of a left back in a three than a, than a, sorry, left side center back in a three than an actual left back. But I think he's developed well since Dives took over. You have to remember, he spent the first year of his Everton career managed by a PE teacher. So I think their full backs are set. If Mina could stay fit, he'd be. Tremendous for them. He's easily the best centre-back at the club. He just can't stay fit. I think him and Tarkovsky is a decent pairing, but you can't rely on him. So I think one thing you'd look for is an aerially dominant, physical, athletic centre-back to go next to Tarkovsky and give you the option of playing a little bit higher up the pitch because they'd be able to cover back. Um, Someone like Jean-Claire Tadebo could be an option for them, maybe. I would look to sell Pickford, largely to help fund a rebuild. I think you'd get good money for him. I think you can get a good goalkeeper to replace him. And I I just, Pickford's too emotional for me. I don't like goalkeepers that are that kind of overboard. Prefer a camera head. So I'd look to replace Pickford. I'd look for a centre-back. I think Onana's got the potential to be a monster in midfield. I'd look to upgrade Idrissa gay with a kind of younger version of Idrissa gay. I like James Garner and the balance he can bring. McNeil is good. Iwobi's good. They've got Townsend to come back. They've got Damari Gray. So I think the wide areas are okay. You've got to get better cover for Calvert-Lewin. It it didn't work out with Mopey and Calvert-Lewin's injuries are such a concern. When he plays, they're a different team. When he's on, when Calvert Lewin's on form, they're a different team. If you could sell Calvert Lewin, get good money, and go and buy Victor Gorkarez, something like someone like him, um, I I'd, I'd do that, and I'd look for one more maybe supplier to him. I think they've got a lot of work to do. I really do. Uh, how can Ajax fit, fix their current crisis? Do you know, I haven't actually spent enough time paying attention to the area division this year. So I'll get back to you on that. And what rules, procedures and elements could football look to emulate from your from American sports? Um, I do think how they do kind of their version of VAR in the different sports is superior to what we do in in the Premier League and in football in general. So I do think there's aspects there we can take into account. I know a lot of people will say the salary cap, the issue with that is then you have to have a salary floor. And that salary floor is going to be outside of what certain clubs are able to pay. It's as simple as that. Um, I, I don't. We've taken a lot from them in terms of the use of analytics, in terms of how teams go about scouting and having entire personnel departments dedicated to scouting, dedicated to making players' lives easier. You know, we, we've seen a lot more of that. We've seen a lot more uh borrowing in terms of recovery and how we go about that in terms of strength and conditioning as well. There's been a lot taken from the US sports. So I do think we've taken much of what we can. The one I would say to look at is probably the instant replay slash VAR aspect. I think I think there's more to be learned from how the Americans go about that than what we see in the, um, the Premier League right now. Right. Um... Let's have a look then at the Discord. So, Rick M, where do you think Dylan Brooks will end up and who should Memphis replace him with? Oh, I hope he doesn't end up in Minnesota. That's my big hope. Um, Where would he end up? Like, Dylan Brooks is a good defensive player. There's no question. He made all defense this year. I don't think he should have made all defense this year. And by the way, Jaden McDaniels got ripped off. But he is a good defensive player, and I do wonder if you put him at the three for Sacramento, would that help them defensively? Because they were a poor defensive team this year. I think Dylan Brooks could make it could make an impact for them in the three spot. Um, potentially Atlanta. I know they've got Hunter, but he's often injured. So maybe there. I don't think Indiana would want him. I don't think that Dylan Brooks, Dylan the villain persona would play well in Indiana. Could the Pistons look to bring him in? You've got your backcourt set. You've got Jalen Duran. If they somehow were to land a top two pick this year in the draft, which is possible. Their record suggests that it's very possible that they do. They could end up with Victor. So you go probably Victor at the four, Duran at the five, Cade at the two, Jade Nivey at the one, and Dylan Brooks would fit in the three spot to give them some perimeter defense. Um... So that would work. The other option, obviously, is what, well, you know, in, in that draft, um, is the kid from Alabama. Um, cause Scoot Henderson doesn't really make sense for, doesn't really make sense for Detroit, but Brandon Miller might, and he could play the four as like a stretch four type. He's more of a wing, but, he could definitely play the four. He's a huge prospect. Might be some questions about his off-court shenanigans. But if they could get either of them, then Dylan Brooks might make sense for them. Um, even if they just ended up with uh, Jarrus Walker from Houston as a four, then you'd have him at the four, Duran at the five. And again, Dylan at the three could work there. So yeah, Detroit, Atlanta, Sacramento. If he wasn't such a clown, Milwaukee as a three. Did you play Middleton at the two? So you go Holiday, Middleton, Brooks. Cause he's got that toughness and that defense, which is would fit well with kind of their mindset. But he's just a clown. Giannis at the four and, and, um, Lopez at the fives. So he could fit there stylistically, but again, he, he doesn't shoot well from the outside and their biggest issue is shot making. So probably not from a, a stylistic offense point of view, but defensively he'd fit well. Um, who should Memphis replace him with? If I was them, I'd probably try and kick the tires on OG Ananobi. I think OG would fit really well into that Memphis team. Now, they'd have to give up quite a bit to get him, and Brooks's contract would have been one of the pieces that you'd want to use to try and get him. But I think I think they did try at the deadline. And I assume Dylan Brooks was in that offer. But to get him now, if Brooks is going to be a free agent, that's tougher. Um, Could they offer maybe Luke Kennard? Luke Kennard. I don't know that they'd want to give up any of their young players, so I don't think they'd want to give up Santi Aldama. I don't think they'd want to give up David Roddy. I don't think they'd want to give up Jake Laravia. They definitely won't want want to give up Brandon Clark or Zaire Williams. But maybe Williams is the piece that gets that deal done. Maybe it's Luke Kennard, Zaire Williams, and I think two first-round picks would be fair but I could see Toronto wanting three, given how first round picks have become so undervalued. Now that trade works cap-wise. Luke Kennard and Zaire Williams for OG. That does work cap-wise. But the picks would have to be, the picks would be the key thing there. Um... Zach, given our owners, I can't. Oh, sorry, no, he's he's answering another question. And um, to Tom James, I know you're also a fan of Fernando Redondo. I'm not a fan; I'm the fan of Fernando Redondo. He is, he is probably, he's my favorite ever midfielder. I think he's the best defensive midfielder the game has ever seen. Injuries just completely torpedoed his career. But he, like, he was incredible. Incredible. For Tenerife and for Real. He was just a different class. And he went to Milan. He was only 31. It just spoiled the end of his career. He obviously had the falling out with the Argentine national team because he refused to cut his hair because Daniel Passarella, who is one of the greatest defenders of all time but is also a guy with very 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 questionable viewpoints on humanity he didn't want players with long hair earrings or, homo- or or who were homosexual in his squad which might just speak to you know an underlying issue for daniel Passarella. um so yeah he missed out on two world cups that were he should have been an absolute star on both of them. Um sorry, not he he didn't he missed out on yeah. Yeah, he missed out in two World Cups. He missed out on ninety eight because of the the whole thing with um Passarella. He was brilliant at ninety four. And then he missed out in two thousand two because of injuries. I don't know that I knew this. Redondo turned down a call-up to the national team just before the 1990 World Cup. This is before he moved to Europe. Uh, The player excused himself on account of not wanting to interrupt his law studies. Fantastic. guy's a genius. Um, He's from a a well-to-do family. His sons are both footballers. So the question, obviously is about Federico, who's the youngest son. The Fernando Junior, the older son, was a player briefly, but has, I think, since retired. Federico's really special. I think he's really special. He's got his dad's mobility and his dad's awareness, but he's got the build of a Busquets, and he plays right-footed as well, not left-footed like his dad. I, I, I do think he's really special. I've been trying to keep him under wraps, for a while because I didn't want to talk about him too much but I, I would I would love to see Liverpool make a move for him I think he'd be brilliant I genuinely think he'd be brilliant in their team especially this current team now I do think he needs another year of seasoning in Argentina so I'd, I'd in, be in favour of leaving him where he is for another year but it wouldn't surprise me at all if like Benfica or Porto come in from this summer I think he's very very special um, Matt JT. I remember a couple of years ago when United were fourth or fifth, and you said it would be better for them long term if they finished fifth. So the Glazers didn't really have a choice but to invest and improve the squad. Do you think it's the same for Liverpool this season? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I have I have a, a horrible feeling in the back of my mind that if Liverpool get into the top four this year, um, it will be seen as an excuse not to spend as much as is needed. In the same way that in the 2020, 2021 season, uh, some flaws in Liverpool's setup and structure and squad were exposed badly. And Liverpool signed one player that summer because they got top four. And I do worry that the same thing could happen again this year. Now, I don't think they can afford to do that this year because I think Klopp might get the hump. But then he is also part of the reason they don't spend, so it's hard to know. It is hard to know. The one thing I will say is that fourth does make it easier to get the players you want because you'll have Champions League. Fifth makes it a little bit difficult. And if you do drop out of the European Cup spots at this point in the Premier League, it's going to start getting harder to get back in. Because we're seeing the growth of Newcastle. We've seen the growth of Arsenal over the last couple of years. United are spending money, and apparently Ten Hag is working miracles. Spurs, you assume, will get it right at some point. And, you know, Villa are starting to grow, and it's it just going to get more competitive at the top end of the league. So I, I do worry. Um, AMK2889, some questions about goalies. Who? Which keeper had the best prime? The best prime, I would say Manuel Nauer. I think the best goalkeeper I've ever seen is Gigi Buffon, but I think Nauer's prime might have been a little higher. But Buffon maintained Buffon maintained a longer a longer prime. And actually, to be fair, it's probably just Buffon. I think Buffon's peak is, is still like Naur's all around game is incredible, but yeah, I'm gonna just say Buffon. Greatest season by a goalkeeper. Oof. Peter Schmeichel had some outrageous seasons for United. But Petr Cech, 04 05, for Chelsea was just outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. So I'll go him. Greatest game. Um, Greatest game. Manuel Neuer against guys pointing out Lev, Lev Yashin did have once have a season where he conceded ten goals, and that is disgusting. Like to to be that good, but it's it's so long ago, and I I never saw him play, so I only saw you know video footage of him, so I couldn't judge his whole season. We don't know who he's playing against. Or anything, at least with Petacek, is He was playing, you know, against top-level competition. Greatest game, Manuel Nauer for Schalke against Portal. Game went to penalties. Easy to find. Some of your favourite saves. Uh, most of my favourite saves made by Gianluca Pagliuca. There's one in the 98 World Cup where the ball is chipped over him and he just somehow managed to leap back and flick it over the crossbar. He made a save for Sampdoria once where he made the first save from close range and kind of batted it almost centrally into his own box. More of a reflex than anything. He had no control over it. He just stopped the first shot. And the ball falls to, I want to say it's a Juventus forward might have been an Udinese for because I've only seen the video of it and it's from about 12 yards and it's hit pretty well and he goes from one post to the other on one step and a leap and somehow claws it out of the top corner. Gianluca Pagliuca to me is the best shot stopper I've ever seen. Now he would make Mistakes that a goalkeeper of his quality shouldn't make, but I, I think he's the best shot stopper I've ever seen. Do you think keepers are too protected? No, I think forwards are too protected. I do. I think forwards are too protected. I think goalkeepers need a bit of protection. Um, I think forwards are too too protected. Right, Isaac Gilding. Question for the pod: I've asked you a couple of times before who you th- would think would win in a series of one v ones. Rules were vaguely. It was on a seven-aside pitch. It was first to three. We had to win by two clear goals. Here's some of the list for you to run through: Moisés Caicedo versus Eduardo Camavinga. Uh, Camavinga would win this. Camavinga is the more skilled ball player and can match Caicedo's defensive output. I think. I think Camavinga is the best young midfielder in the world. I, I think he's outrageously talented at, at everything like he's playing left back in the Champions League semi-final of the night like it's nothing to. him. Gavi versus Pedri, I think Gavi would win that because I think he's more dynamic and I think the kind of ferocious nature of his game, that non-stop energy would give Gavi I'll give Pedri some trouble. Now Pedri's an outrageous player. He is sensationally gifted, but I think the intensity of Gavi wins out. Um, Haaland versus Mbappe. Mbappe wins that. I, I don't, I don't actually think that's all that close. Haaland's an incredible goal scorer. But for me, Mbappe is quite comfortably the better player. Salah versus, versus Vinicius. I'm going to go for Salah because I think his strength is the outlier here. They're both similarly level of quickness. They're both great 1v1. But Salah is stronger, and I think he's a better finisher. So I'll go for Salah. Matoma versus Grealish. Matoma, I think. I don't think... I think Matoma is better off-ball than Grealish. And I think he's a better dribbler as well. So And he's quicker too, so I'm going to go Matoma. Uh, Rodri versus Casemiro. Ooh. Rodri's the better player, but Casemiro's the better shithouse. And I think there's a psychotic drive to win in Casemiro, so I'll go Casemiro. Borea versus Valverde. I'm going to go Valverde. I just think he's... They could have one midfielder to be him. It would be him. Uh, Rodrigo versus Luis Diaz. 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 Rodrigo's Tremendously talented. He's too inconsistent. Get him on a bad day, he'll be no use. I'm going to go Luis Diaz. Romeo Lavia versus Manu Kone. I'll go Kone because he's more developed right now. He's a better dribbler as well. And I think he can match Lavia defensively. So I'll go Manu Kone. Lewandowski versus Benzema. I'll go Benzema. I think there's more to his game. I think he'd find more ways to win. and I think Lewandowski's got... I think Lewandowski's got something about him where he can often just give up on something. So I'm going to go with, with Benzema. Bellingham against Many. I'll come back to that. Ugarte versus Lubotka. Oh. oh, I'll go Lubotka right now because I think there's maybe just a little bit more to his game on the ball. Now, Ugarte is much better on the ball than people give him credit for. But I think Lubotka is just a little bit ahead. But I think within, within 12 months, Ugar will close that gap and overtake him. But for right now, I'm going to go with, with Lubotka. Um, Kvaratskhelia versus Raphael Leao. Oh. <laughs> Kvaratskhelia, Yeah, Kvartch-Gellia. I, I... Leao is great, but he's very inconsistent. And I think if you're asking one of them to defend, I think you'll get a lot more out of Kavicha. So I'll go for him. Thiago versus Busquets. I, I'm going to go Thiago because he's more mobile. And I think he's got more bastard in him as well. So I'm going to go with him. Uh, Paul Mullen versus Ollie Parmer. Paul Mullen. Quicker, more mobile. We'll go with him. Ollie Watkins versus Ivan Tony. I'm going to go IT. I just think his all-round game is a bit better. I just think his all-round... I think And I think he's more of a cold-blooded finisher, whereas Watkins can be a little erratic in his finishing. Prime or nine versus prime Maldini. It depends on the era that we're playing in. I'm going to go... I'm gonna go or nine because I just I just think like he was so unstoppable. And Maldini's the greatest defender ever. And maybe he is the one guy that could have stopped him. 1v1, just man marking him out of games. But Ornine 9 would make the same run fifty-six times in a game. That might not work the fifty-five times, but it will work once, and all he needs is to work as once. But if it's first to three and you've got to win by two clear goals, I mean, Maldini doesn't really need to beat him defensively. He can shoot from distance. And Ornine wouldn't be known for the defensive side of the game. And Maldini was great. in the box. you know what? I'm going to go Maldini. Uh Prime Maradona versus Prime Beresi. I'm going to go Maradona because he's got more ways to score. And it doesn't matter to him what era it's played in. He would have thrived. He would have been I, I firmly believe you put him into the modern game. If you put 23-year-old Diego Maradona into the modern game as a second striker, I think he's 30 goals and 25 assists a season without breaking a sweat. There's just there's, there's no physicality in the game anymore. That guy was getting kicked up in the air, having to play in boots too big for him because his ankles were so swollen. Like on, on cabbage patches now on these carpets that they play on. I think he'd be unbelievable. Berez incredible, but I'm gonna go for Maradona. Um that's yeah, I've got a lot to <laughs> current James Milner versus two scarecrows. Um the scarecrows would win because James Milner would commit too many fouls and they would score from free kicks. Current Jordan Henderson versus three kids on each other's shoulders in a trench coat pretending to be an adult. Um, Well, Jordan would try and square up to them first in his pseudo-hardman role and then fall over himself. He'd likely try that back post chip to nobody. You could probably fool him into back post chips to the kids on each other's shoulders in front of his own goal. Yeah, the kids are winning. The kids are winning. Um, I think that's all the questions we got for this week. So, a um, little bit of news here. Uh, Tottenham and Liverpool are currently ranked as the two most su- sustainably run clubs on the green chart. Um, Man City third, Southampton fourth, Brighton fifth, Arsenal sixth, Wolves and Manchester United seventh, Shame on Nottingham Forest way down the bottom, shame on Bournemouth. Everybody else everybody else scored at least a a 10. Tottenham and Liverpool at 24. Forest a 4.5 and Bournemouth a 6.5. Um so this was based on their policy and commitment, how much clean energy they're using, how energy efficient they are, sustainable transport to and from the stadiums. Um single-use plastic reduction, waste efficiency, water efficiency, plant-based and low-carbon food, biodiversity, education on all these matters, communication and engagement, and sourcing and procurement. And, uh, yeah, Nottingham Forest, You should, the maximum score you can get is a 27. Liverpool and Spurs get a 24. Nottingham Forest, 4.5. Bournemouth, 6.5. Maybe it's because they're new to the division. Uh, Maybe. But, you know, there's no real excuse for that. Um, Leeds and Fulham at 10. Villa, 10.5. Newcastle, 12.5. West Ham, 13. Leicester, 14. Everton, 15. Palace and Chelsea, 16. Brentford, 16.5. United and uh, Wolves seventeen point five, Arsenal eighteen, Brighton and Hove Albion nineteen point five, Southampton twenty, Man City twenty three. Although they probably fudged the results for themselves, and then obviously, like I said, Liverpool and Spurs on twenty four. We will finish with the gossip. Uh, France and Tottenham goalkeeper Hugo Lloris has an offer to play in Saudi Arabia next season and could treble. His current salary, he should take it. Spurs should encourage him to take it. Arsenal are set to announce a new contract for Bakayo Saka. Newcastle have revived their interest in James Madison. I think he'd be a really good signing. Liverpool are interested in Aurelian Choumany, even if it initially means a loan deal. I'd take him at any type of deal, but this is 90minute.com, which means it's probably Graham Bailey. It is Graham Bailey, so we'll throw that firmly in the bin. Uh, Tottenham want to secure a replacement for Fabio Palatici before finalising plans to bring in a new manager. Spurs doing things the right way for a change. Manchester City have turned their attention to Mateo Kovacic as an alternative to Jude Bellingham. Um, That's an odd alternative, considering he is 29 and Bellingham is 19. Uh, Surely you'd be looking for someone that was younger and you could potentially play or have for much longer. Uh, That would seem like the more sensible thing to do. Uh, But this was written by Peter Rook, so it could well be the usual level of tripe. Um, Liverpool are poised to sign Ron robert Zealer as a backup goalkeeper. I've been calling that one for a while, so I'm happy with that. Wolves are interested in Victor Giorgis. Uh Paris Saint-Germain are set to lose Kylian Mbappe I doubt it, not this summer Napoli have increased their price for Victor Osman to 139 million no, what they've actually done is they've said he's not for sale under any circumstances AC Milan's Raphael Leao has been linked with Liverpool and Chelsea has signed a new five-year contract uh, I don't ever remember him being linked with Liverpool Liverpool are ready to meet the 52 million release clause for Manuel Ugarte. I do hope that's true Manchester United are monitoring Latour Martinez. I would doubt it. He doesn't fit what they want in a nine at all. Aaron Ramsdale is close to agreeing a new long-term contract at Arsenal. Sunderland are planning to offer Jack Clark a new contract to fend off interest from Crystal Palace and Brentford. Very talented player. I think he's done really well this year. It's a shame that he lost a couple of years of his career there with the whole Spurs move. Uh, Barcelona's 20-year-old Brazilian forward Rafinha has rubbish claims. He is open to a move away from the Nou Camp this summer. Um, yeah, I mean, look, he's got a long-term contract there. and Why would he want to leave? You know? Right, folks, that is it. That's all I've got for today. Thank you. As always, I will see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. network.